0: Warning. Binge mode contains adult content.
1: Yeah, we're not quite at the point where Harry is critiquing Cho's wetness. But we're getting there. That will happen. So if that's not the kind of thing that you want to hear in a Harry Potter podcast, please check out Dual Threat with Ryan Russillo. One more warning.
0: Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why Flitwick recommends bringing your own glasses to the hog's head, please proceed with extreme caution. And now binge mode. Harry.
1: She said timidly.
0: Don't you see? This, this is exactly why we need you. We need to know what it's really like facing him. Facing Voldemort.
1: It was the first time she had ever said Voldemort's name, and it was this, more than anything else, that calmed Harry. Still breathing hard, he sank back into his chair, becoming aware as he did so that his hand was throbbing horribly again. He wished he had not smashed the bowl of Mertlap essence.
0: Well, think about it,
1: said Hermione quietly. Please? Harry could not think of anything to say. He was feeling ashamed of his outburst already. He nodded, hardly aware of what he was agreeing to. (laughs)
0: And welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter Yes I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. What a great website. Joining me today, now that he's finished taking mm. Winky to sleep one off in the come and go room, it's yes. Ringer staff writer, your head master, Jason Concepcion.
1: Mal! Yeah. There are elf-sized beds in there, and Winky needs to snap out of it. You need a bigger bed for binge mode, Harry Potter, because we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether you require The Room for cleaning supplies, bathroom breaks, or to hide those pesky shards of your own soul. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate and review us. We require five points and stars for Binge Mode only. (laughs) Also, go ahead and follow us on that Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans and which is an excellent place to share photos Of your own homemade, life-sized lion head. So many wonderful lunas with lion heads at the Leaky Con this year. Wonderful.
0: Incredible cosplay. Wonderful. Wonderful. When you join the Facebook group, don't worry about that piece of parchment we make you sign. It's fine. Don't think about it. That's right.
1: Just don't snitch. That's all I'm saying.
0: (laughs) After you sign it, don't
1: snitch.
0: Yesterday on Benjamin Harry Potter, we explored how Harbingers... Shape chapters 10 through 14 of Order of the Phoenix. And on today's episode, we're diving into chapters 15 through 19. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge. As always, while those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep, deep. on details from all seven books and eight films and the wider Potter canon, yeah. taking the entire series into account from the moment Hermione asked for our signature. So keep those fake galleons in your pocket because it's time to head to the rumor requirement.
1: Well, Mal, carry on. You know what to do. Or am I such a substandard co-host that you've never learned how to open an episode? It's time to offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened. In order, chapters 15 to 19. So let's climb aboard this scarlet steam engine of plot, the Hogwarts. Ah, choo choo When
0: Hermione shared her fears about the ministry's interference at Hogwarts, even she couldn't have predicted how quickly and widely Umbridge would gain power at the castle.
1: Through a series of ministry decrees, the defense against the dark arts professor is named Hogwarts High Inquisitor, which is a totally not troubling uh, title, (laughs) and allowed to inspect other teachers, ban student groups she doesn't like, and dole out punishments. What to do when authoritarianism rises? Rebel. Hermione convinces
0: Harry to lead a secretive group named eventually by Ginny as Dumbledore's Army to teach nearly 30 students how to actually defend themselves against dark magic.
1: For Harry, this is both a section of emotional highs from pride about Dumbledore's Army to a fluttering heart in conversations with Cho and deep, anxious lows, fear about Sirius being discovered, and at the end, despair at being banned for Quidditch for life.
0: Tough stuff for our guy.
1: Yeah.
0: Jason? Yeah? I thought you might be grateful for a little extra authority. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through mm. our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters 15 through 19 of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix is... Resistance.
1: Chapter 15, The Hogwarts High Inquisitor. The Next day, Percy's promise... Bears fell fruit. Dolores Umbridge is on the cover of The Prophet alongside the headline, Ministry Seeks Educational Reform, Dolores Umbridge Appointed First Ever High Inquisitor. Eek. The article reveals that the ministry has passed legislation which grants it unprecedented control over Hogwarts. The article, which relies on luminaries such as Percy Weasley and Lucius Malfoy, known Death Eater as sources, also reveals the reason Umbridge is at Hogwarts. A recent educational decree granted the government power to appoint a professor when Dumbledore proves unable, which he did because, as we all know, defense against the dark arts is jinxed. Thanks, Voldy. In one of the only instances of an attempt at fair and balanced reporting, the publication notes that Wizengamut elders Griselda Marchbanks and Tiberius Ogden have resigned in protest with Banksy telling the paper, quote, Hogwarts is a school, not an outpost of corny Fudge's office. We say fair and balanced. The quote bleeds directly into a tout for, quote, a full account of Madam Marchbank's alleged links to subversive goblin groups. Boy. Part of the power granted to Umbridge under educational degree number 23 is the right to inspect teachers. We saw when Umbridge made her welcome feast speech that Sprout and McGee were barely able to control their anger. Hogwarts teachers are loyal to Dumbledore. What's more, they're committed to independent institutions and thought. They won't abide by this. And in the face of oppression, rebellion brews. Love that side door
0: traffic. You know, tease the sidebar. That's right. It's effective. Good work. <laughs> Following a brief post-potions interlude, in which we're introduced to the absolutely savage owl grading scale, and Harry keeps quiet that he earned a D for dreadful. Tough look for our guy. Harry and Ron arrive for divination and see Umbridge emerging through the trapdoor. She's there to inspect Trelawney. What could go wrong? Trelawney handles this so well. (laughs) Trelawney's voice is shaking as she issues opening instructions, and Umbridge shadows her as she moves among the pairs of students, working to interpret their dreams. Umbridge quickly shifts from questioning the students to questioning the professor, asking how long Trelawney has been there. The answer? Nearly sixteen years—quite oh, a long time, then. <laughs> a time frame that is priming us to receive the news at the end of the book that Trelawney came under Dumbledore's care after making the fateful prophecy about Harry and Voldemort. She asks about Trelawney's famous relation, the celebrated seer Cassandra Trelawney, <laughs> and our Trelawney says these things often skip air three generations. <laughs> And then Umbridge nakedly asks Trelawney, well, if you could just predict something for me then. Trelawney, who, listen, let's just be honest about this. Real talk time has a worse batting average than Chris Davis. It's very tough. Very tough. But is also responsible for two of the most seismic premonitions in modern wizarding history is deeply wounded. The inner eye does not see upon command, she said in scandalized tones. She's genuinely offended by the insinuation that her craft is a party trick, summoned at will, and yet her refusal to comply lasts only as long as it takes Umbridge to begin scratching at her clipboard. Trelawney says, I I think I do see something, something that concerns you, why I sense something, something dark, some grave peril. I'm afraid that you are in grave danger. Now, this is the same doom and gloom effect that Trelawney, who is mere moments away from interpreting every one of Harry's manufactured dreams as a death omen, regularly employs with Harry. And then, as now, she's simultaneously totally bullshitting everyone and also gonna be right, Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Umbridge is not impressed with what she perceives as a transparent, hollow attempt to resist by faking it.
1: Well, if that's really the best you can do... Next up... Class with the High Inquisitor herself. Turn to page 19, gang, because it's time to read chapter two. Hermione resumes instantly putting her hand back in the air. She's read the chapters. She's, in fact, read the entire book from the book. Professor Umbridge blinked but recovered her poise almost instantly. Or at least she thinks she does. She has no idea who she's dealing with. As her next decision shows, she begins to test Hermione on the material. But guess what? Hermione knows the fucking material. Oh, yeah. From the book again. He says that counter-jinxes are improperly named, said Hermione properly. <laughs> he says counter-jinx is just the name people give their jinxes when they want to make them sound more acceptable. How do you like them apples? <laughs> <laughs> it was like, yeah, oh, slink hard, slink hard. Yeah, I get it. You you read a couple chapters of slink hard. Next thing you know, you're going to tell me counter-jinxes are properly named. Fucking Goodwill Hermione over here. <laughs> Professor Umbridge raised her eyebrows, and Harry knew she was impressed against her will. But I disagree, Hermione continued. (laughs) Professor Umbridge's eyebrows rose a little higher, and her gaze became distinctly colder. As Umbridge whispers, Hermione speaks loudly, boldly, deliberately attempting to engage the entire class in her act of defiance. Umbridge deducts five points from Gryffindor for, quote, disrupting my class with pointless interruptions. Again, five points, not bad. I gotta say, I mean, she's in there, like scourging Harry's flesh. Mm -hmm. But in the classroom, five points. Really not that, you know, Snape is out here like 10, 20, 15 (laughs) points at the drop of a hat. I
0: shudder to think of what Umbridge would do with Trevor, though, you know? I don't even want to think about that.
1: But she has some praise for our GFT, good friend Tom. Quote, your previous teachers (laughs) in this subject may have allowed you more license, as none of them... With the possible exception of Professor Quirrell, oh my God. who did at least appear to have restricted himself to age-appropriate subjects, would have passed a ministry inspection. Yeah, Quirrell was a great teacher, said Harry loudly. There was just that minor drawback of him having Lord Voldemort sticking out of the back of his head. Clearly, Harry's been listening to Binge Clearly. Mode. If you're still listening, Harold, we have one more note. Resistance is most effective when it's controlled. This latest outburst, meanwhile, earns our guy one more week of getting his hand scarred up oh, in detention with Dolores Umbridge.
0: Oh, man. Imagine spending literally every one of your evenings with her. Terrible to think about. Not great. One thing that seemingly no one can resist, the pull of the Quidditch bitch. When Angelina learns that Harry has landed himself in detention yet again, she screams at him so fiercely that McGallion notices, naturally... Learning that her prize seeker is missing practice yet again doesn't boost her mood, nor does learning the reason. (laughs) Potter, you must get a grip on yourself, McGonagall says. You are heading for serious trouble, left unsaid. As is my vault, if you're not out there on the pitch. Dun, dun, dun. She takes five points from him, which Harry considers a gross injustice. But as she notes, detentions don't seem to be having any effect on him whatsoever. Harry's getting his hands sliced open every night, and now he's losing points. And finding that the one thing that usually brings him joy, Quidditch, is now just another source of misery. And if he thinks Hermione's going to be sympathetic, he's wrong. Ron might think that McGallion was, quote, bang out of order. (laughs) I like that phrase. But Hermione, while lamenting the loss of points, notes that McGonagall's advice about managing his temper in front of Umbridge is sage. Harry can't resist Umbridge's regime. If he's always in detention.
1: Harry's anger at Hermione is driven from his mind when he enters Transfiguration, where Umbridge is observing the lesson. McGonagall gives no indication that she even notices Umbridge, even ignoring her signature. Ah, silent protest, rebellion through a lack of change, commitment to the norm. This is not, it turns out, a sustainable strategy because Umbridge just rolls over her. I was just wondering, Professor, whether you received my note telling you of the date and time of your inspection. Obviously, I received it or I would have asked you what you are doing in my classroom. Ba-boom!
0: Incredible.
1: When McG continues on, Umbridge, him-him, again. I wonder, said Professor McGonagall in a cold fury, turning on Professor Umbridge, how you expect to gain an idea of my usual teaching methods if you continue to interrupt me. You see, I do not generally permit people to talk when I am talking. Boom! She is unafraid of conflict, though, as Harry notes to Ron, Quite a hypocrite when it comes to lecturing Harry on not losing his temper. But this isn't hypocrisy. To mock, it's totally endearing. She wants to protect Harry from suffering Umbridge's wrath, but that doesn't mean she wants to cow to Umbridge either. Quite the opposite. She's ready to resist her directly. When Umbridge informs McGonagall, whom we learn has been teaching at Hogwarts for 39 years come December, that she'll receive her inspection result within 10 days, McGee says indifferently, I can hardly wait. What an icon. As she exits and ushers out our trio, Harry could not help giving her a faint smile and couldn't have sworn he received one in return. This I is a subtle that. but wonderful moment, a reminder that advice doesn't equal a divide and that guiding each other is actually part of building the resistance together.
0: I really love the Harry and McGonagall duo. Such a delightful book for them. When Harry heads to care of magical creatures, Umbridge is there again. Like, does she not have any leisure activities? Nothing else she wants to focus on? This many inspections today? And though Umbridge is quite taken with Grubbly Plank, her efforts to discredit Dumbledore meets resistance. It's not even really intentional on Grubbly Plank's part. She's just being honest when she says that she has no information on Hagrid's extended absence. And she's just sharing her candid personal opinion when she says, oh, yes, Dumbledore's excellent. Or that there's not much left to teach these students before they're ready for the creatures that will show up on their al exam. Mm-hmm. It's not PR or deliberate misdirection on her part as it would be with some others. It's not even really an impassioned defense of an ally. But in a way, that's why it's so impactful. She's not a bias source, not a card-carrying member of Dumbledore's camp, and yet she has nothing bad to say about him. Umbridge, who obviously was hoping for a different response, greets these comments by, quote, looking politely incredulous. <laughs> Naturally, Malfoy is all too ready to rock the boat. When Umbridge asks about the rumored injuries that have taken place in this class, he perks up, happily regaling Umbridge with the tale of his buckbeak induced maiming. When Harry chimes in with an only because he was too stupid to listen to what Hagrid told him to do, he gets another night of detention.
1: When Harry returns from that night's detention, his hand oozing blood, Hermione and Ron are waiting with a bowl of strained and pickled murtlap tentacles to soothe his wound. Ron again says, why don't you tell McGonagall? quote, how long do you reckon it'd take Umbridge to pass another decree saying anyone who complains about the high inquisitor gets sacked immediately? It's not that Harry has stopped viewing this as a private battle of wills necessarily, but it's notable that he's now thinking about how his actions will impact others. He doesn't want to get other people in trouble. A resistance leader needs to think about his troops and the collateral damage. And on that note, Hermione has something she'd like to float. We've got to do something about her. They're not learning defense from her. They can't let it stand. I was thinking that maybe the time's come that we should just just do it ourselves. It being learn defense. Harry and Ron are confused, as usual, (laughs) and also worry about the mountain of homework they already have to do. But this is much more important than homework, Hermione says, knocking Petunia's Dementor knowledge off the most shocking order of Phoenix line perch. Remember, in stone, Hermione said, I hope you're pleased with yourselves. We could have all been killed or worse expelled. When she entered the wizarding world, there was really nothing more important to her than being a good rule-abiding student and not getting kicked out of school. Times have changed. Hermione has changed with them. As we will see, she continues to evolve. By Hallows, she's not even worried about her education at all, skipping her seventh year in order to hunt horcruxes with Harry, although she takes quite a few books with her by then. Here she knows that grades don't matter if the institutions those grades are earned in and for are corrupt and crumbling. She says, it's all about preparing ourselves, like Harry said in Umbridge's first lesson, for what's waiting out there. It's about making sure we really can defend ourselves. Even books aren't enough. They need a real teacher who can show them how to use spells. They need a general.
0: Harry thinks that she might be building up toward recommending Lupin, but he's mistaken. Isn't it obvious? I'm talking about you, Harry. Ron's with her, and Harry is initially sure that they're egging him on, but Hermione is adamant. He's the best in their year at defense, even beating Hermione in the one exam that they both sat in a year that defense was taught by a competent teacher. And what's more, as she notes, it's not about exams. It's about what Harry's done. You know, all the shit that he thought to himself, when he stewed over not being named prefect, when he ran through the laundry list of his achievements in his mind. Now, though, Harry's not feeling so bold or self-important. Very notable here because this indicates, this reminds us, he doesn't actually think he's superior to his friends. He just gets upset, as we all do. Further evidence that, you know, the complaints that people have about Harry being a dick in this book are, look, everyone's entitled to their opinion, but it's more complicated than that. And so is Harry, just like all people are. Ron... Runs through the checklist of Harry's achievements right now in this conversation, and Harry's ready to explain away everyone. The stone? That was luck. Besting your good friend Tom? A good friend Tom! <laughs> yeah, but if fox hadn't turned up. <laughs> My good friend Fox. <gasps> Battling the Dementors? That was a fluke. The graveyard? This is where Harry snaps. Just listen to me, all right? It sounds great when you say it like that, but all that stuff was luck. I didn't know what I was doing half the time. I didn't plan any of it. I just did whatever I could think of, and I nearly always had help. And on some level, he's definitely right. As we've outlined over the course of the pod, there was a lot of luck and play for Harry in all of these moments and a lot of help. But that's okay. Everyone needs help. Being the hero doesn't mean always having to go it alone. Jon Snow, take note. Yes. As Ron and Hermione smirk, Harry's anger rises. Quote, don't sit there grinning like you know better than I do. He stands up in anger, pissing off Crookshanks, who deserves more respect, just like all the pets in this story. Quote, You don't know what it's like. You, neither of you, you've never had to face him, have you? You think it's just memorizing a bunch of spells and throwing them at him, like you're in class or something? The whole time you know there's nothing between you and dying except your own your own brain or guts or whatever. Like you can think straight when you know you're about a second from being murdered or tortured or watching your friends die. They've never taught us that in their classes, what it's like to deal with things like that. When you two sit there acting like I'm a clever little boy to be standing here alive, like Diggory was stupid, like he messed up. You mm. just don't get it. That could just as easily have been me. It would have been if Voldemort hadn't needed me. But Hermione isn't cowed by this at all. In fact, Harry has just handed her the argument she needs. That's exactly why they need him to teach them, she yes. says. The hero's journey is so often a burden shouldered alone. A road of mentors lost and isolation found. Hermione is asking Harry to consider the idea that it doesn't have to be that way. For Harry, at the end, it will. But even that solitude is a path toward a community and a shared fight. He can bring others with him. He can show them the way. Not only to help Harry in his fight, Mm -hmm. but to mount a fight of their own. We need to know what it's really like, Hermione says. Facing him. Facing Voldemort. It's the first time that she's ever said his name.
1: Chapter 16, In the Hog's Head. Mm. Hermione gives Harry two weeks to think over her idea before raising it again. That's two weeks of pointless dark arts classes and Harry bristles when Hermione brings it up. You did listen to what I said about a load of it being luck, didn't you? Teaching is responsibility teaching students how to defend themselves against Death Eaters is another kind of responsibility altogether. Voldemort and his forces will ask no quarter. They will use unforgivable curses, and they will shoot to kill. Harry survived his run-ins with the Dark Lord, but as he himself mentioned, it was always a very close-run thing. And yes, there's no denying it. Luck was an important factor. Harry knows what resisting evil means. It means innocent people dying, even when you do your very best. Hermione presses. Yes, Harry, said Hermione gently, but all the same, there's no point pretending you're not good at defense against the dark arts because you are. And then she goes on to list his achievements, resisting the imperious curse, producing a full, uh, how impressed Vic the dick is with him. Ron flinches upon hearing Vic's name on Hermione's lips. A humorous exchange there follows. Yeah, what did did Vicky say? Ho, ho. I love that response. Ho, ho. You're not still in contact with him, are you? Harry's resistance to the idea of him teaching defense against the dark arts weakens ever so slightly. Just you and Ron, yeah?
0: Well, not so fast. No. In fact, not just Hermione and Ron, just uh, Hermione, Ron, and a few, a few others. others. Not a few Not so many. select others. Hermione tells Harry, quote, I really think you ought to teach anyone who wants to learn. I mean, we're talking about defending ourselves against v- Voldemort. Oh, don't be pathetic, Ron. How quickly she shifts from yes. being afraid to say the name to judging Ron for still fearing it. Great stuff. It doesn't seem fair if we don't offer the chance to other people. Hermione has really thought this through. When it comes to organized resistance at the school, she's been... A thought leader. Really? She was out there forming spew, or as she would insist on us calling it and showing the proper <laughs> respect. SPEW, that's right. Taking a brave and righteous stand against the structural injustices of the wizarding world. The fight for house elf rights one that she continues throughout this book. She's getting so good at her knitting. It's really you can incredible. Almost tell the difference between the socks and the hats. <laughs> is in one respect harder than the fight against Voldemort because no one really is invested in that. No one at her. all. And yet she perseveres, the sign of a leader. When Harry and Ron understandably turned up their noses at continuing to look at the Daily Prophet, the failing Daily Prophet, Hermione sees the paper as an invaluable source of intelligence. She is prepared. She is thinking so much bigger,
1: certainly than Ron. <laughs> Ron is... is what is Ron... What is Ron's thought process about lately? He's clean sweeps. That's it.
0: (laughs) And soon, Michael. Yeah. She suggests a meetup with the interested students during their next visit in Hogsmeade. Ron wants to know why they have to do it outside of school. Again, Hermione shows how thoughtful she's being, how many factors she's considered, because— I don't think Umbridge would be very happy if she found out what we were up to. Jesus,
1: Ron, if you have to fucking have everything spelled out for you, it's unbelievable. <laughs> the meeting is to take place at the Hogshead, a dodgy spot. Sure, but quieter than the always bustling 3 broomsticks. Real talk, though, one star on Yelp. The Hogshead?
0: Like when hogshead the, is disgusting. When the cloth that you're using, and by you I mean Aberforth, more on him in the Seven, hogshead makes is the glasses dirtier. Yeah. That's a tough sign. <laughs> Imagine,
1: you know, bar rescue at the Hogshead <laughs> Is that the rag that you're using oh to clean God. the glasses also? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we'll be overheard, Hermione says, wrongly. Quite. <laughs> you know, with a pang, Harry, who's worried about Sirius being reckless and trying to meet them, thinks about how he wouldn't be able to go to Hogsmead at all if not for his godfather's signature. Hermione and Ron have been talking to students, sussing out interested parties. At the, this place is dirty, it's smelly, it's awful, there's no refrigeration. (laughs) At the dirty, smelly hog's head, they saw a suspicious-looking witch sitting in a corner, her face completely covered by a veil. Harry remembers Hagrid's words from Harry's first year. You got a lot of funny folks in Hagrid. (laughs) He's worried that it could be Umbridge, but Hermione points out that A, Umbridge is shorter than this person, and B, if it is her, what should he do? We learn in time that the witch is actually Dung Fletch, Mundungus Mm -hmm. Fletcher, in disguise spying and reporting on their activities to the Order. Third years and up are allowed to visit the village, so, like, Umbridge, go kick rocks. This is all perfectly normal minus, you know, the light treason. (laughs) Hermione has triple-checked the rules, and they're not breaking any. Though Professor Flitwick, quote, advised me strongly to bring our own glasses. (laughs) (laughs) The glasses are filthy! You just blew your nose on the rag that you cleaned the glasses with? You don't even use Scourgify? Why are you even using a rag? Cleaning up the goat feces. There's goats! Anyway. They order butterbeers and wait to see who shows up. How many did you say again, Hermione? You know, just a couple of people. Hermione repeated, checking her watch and then looking anxiously toward the door. I told them to be here about now and I'm sure they all know where it is. Oh, look, this might be them now. Oh, look, it's 25 people. (laughs) Only 25. A crowd (laughs) walks into the hog's head.
0: I was flashing back to when I thought we were having a normal 12-person fantasy league, and then, Sean, you invited 40 people. That's what this reminded
1: me of. Notable attendees include Neville, Dean, the Patil sisters, Cho, Luna, Katie, I almost bled out Belle, Alicia, Angelina. Colin and Little D. Creavy and Fred and George. by the way,
0: definitely a second year. Should not be in. Yeah, Little D, yes. How is he there? It's
1: an issue. This is (laughs) a problem. How is he there? (laughs) Fred and George, among many others. A couple of people, said Harry hoarsely to Hermione. A couple of people, yes. Well, the idea seemed quite popular, Mm. said Hermione happily. Ron, do you want to pull up some more chairs? Hermione is just like, yes. Okay, I've registered your objections and we're moving on now. a running
0: point. I love it. Hermione, if it was not clear already, is the mastermind. And Harry wonders what she's been telling people. Why are so many people here? What are they expecting? I've told you, they just want to hear what you've got to say, said Hermione soothingly. But Harry continued to look at her so furiously that she quickly added, you don't have to do anything yet. I'll speak to them first. Harry will come to be the indispensable leader of what will soon be known as Dumbledore's army. But the vision." planning, the call to action, that's all Hermione yes. Hermione makes her opening remarks. Harry here had the idea. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> withering under Harry's furious glare, she continues, I had the idea that it might be good if people who wanted to study defense against the dark arts. And here she gains her momentum. She's hitting her stride. And I mean, really study it. You know, not the rubbish that Umbridge is doing with us. And the quote continues, Hermione's voice became suddenly much stronger and more confident because nobody could call that defense against the dark arts. Hear, here," said Anthony Goldstein, and Hermione looked heartened. Well, I thought it would be good if we, well, took matters into our own hands. Exactly how right she is. And this is not just about learning what is necessary to pass their exams. This isn't just about owls. This isn't even purely about survival. Surviving a war against Voldemort, that's not enough. Hermione understands the stakes. They need to advance so that they can win. This is about victory. And why? Quote, because Lord Voldemort's back.
1: Then it's Harry's turn. Earlier in the book, Harry lamented that many of his schoolmates did not take Dumbledore's word about what happened during the third task to heart. Everyone at the Hogshead today wants to hear about what happened. And they want it from Harry. One of them, Zachariah Smith, asks the question on everyone's mind. I think we've got a right to know exactly what makes him say You know who's back. Excuse me, what, motherfucker?
0: Like, real talk, fuck this guy.
1: I'm sorry, who are you? Did somebody hear, like, a little rat squeaking? Is there, like, a little cricket in here? (laughs) What makes me say you know who's back, he asks, looking Zachariah straight in the face. I saw him! But Dumbledore told the whole school what happened last year. If you didn't believe him, you don't believe me. I'm not wasting an afternoon trying to convince anyone.
0: I've got the tension. I can't <laughs> waste
1: my afternoons. Harry is naturally traumatized by what happened in the little Hangleton graveyard. Of course he is. Yes. Dumbledore's word, even despite the recent frustrations, has always been good enough for Harry. And he is confounded that Dumbledore's Remember Cedric speech wasn't enough to satisfy his schoolmates. He's angry at himself for not realizing That's why so many people came today, and he's handling that really poorly, to be fair. Very, very poor. They want the gossip. They want the inside scoop. They want to know what happened. His mistake is viewing the headmaster's speech through the lens of what he himself knows. He was there. So, of course, Dumbledore's speech seems to hit all the notes. And just how he feels about Dumbledore. Yes. Who he's always looked to as
0: beyond reproach. That will obviously change.
1: change And Zacharias points this out. All Dumbledore told us last year was that Cedric got killed by you-know-who and that you brought Diggory's body back to Hogwarts. He didn't give us the details. He didn't tell us exactly how Diggory got murdered.
0: Guess what's not going to soothe Harry? That shit. He is enraged. Quote, If you've come to hear exactly what it looks like when Voldemort murders someone, I
1: can't help you. Well, like he could, but he won't. I know, he's... (laughs) This is Harry—I mean, this is why this book is so great to me, because I understand why Harry's reacting like this, even if I'm, like, he's handling this wrong. They're asking you to be a leader. It's a perfectly they're, justifiable They, they reaction, want you though. to lead them. They're looking for a leader. So, like, he does, be right, the leader. But
0: he doesn't feel that. All right. he feels is that they're looking for him to relive right. his misery for their exactly. benefit, their edification. He continues, I don't want to talk about Cedric Diggory, all right? So if that's what you're here for, you might as well clear out. Harry— is in his own head here. He wants people to believe him. He wants people to fight with him, but he doesn't want to have to explain himself. What's out there already in his mind should be enough. And of course, all of this is natural. He's 15. He recently witnessed murder and the resurrection of the Dark Lord. He has been gawked at his entire Hogwarts career. But the intensity of that gawking after a summer of negative coverage in the Daily Prophet, the failing the Daily, Prophet. Daily Prophet, the ministry's current efforts to discredit him has him so on edge, feeling even more keenly than he usually does by his usual standard, like an animal at the zoo. They're there to watch him dance, and worst of all, he feels like his friend, one of the people he's supposed to be able to trust, led him into this trap. "Quote," he cast an angry look in Hermione's direction. This was, he felt all her fault. She had decided to display him like some sort of freak. And of course, they had all turned up to see just how wild his story was. But none of them left their seats, not even Zacharias Smith, though he continued to gaze intently at Harry.
1: Okay, Harry doesn't want to talk about Cedric and Voldemort. We get that. What will he talk about? One of the attendees, who turns out to be Amelia Bones's niece, Susan Bones, Sue Bones, asks, (laughs) is it true you can produce a Patronus? Yes, of course he can. The crowd is impressed. Again, what a great display that this is highly advanced magic. Freg notes that Milf asked Ron to not tell anybody about this. She said you got enough attention as it was. She's not wrong, (laughs) Mumbled Harry and a couple people (laughs) laughed. Then, and did you kill a basilisk with that sword in Dumbledore's office? Demanded Terry Boot. That's what one of the portraits on the wall told me when I was there last year. Yes, indeed he did. And how hilarious is it that... Harry is so gawked at that even the portraits gossip about him.
0: Totally. Also, how did Terry Boot wind up in Dumbledore's office? <laughs> I don't know. Like, What's that's Terry very Boot strange up stuff? To?
1: The students are even more impressed now. Now they're off and running with all the things they've wanted to know since Harry's first year. Did he save the sorceress? Excuse me, sorcerer's stone. Yes. <laughs> Iconic Neville moment. Here comes Cho. Not to mention. And Harry's eyes snapped onto her. She was looking at him, smiling. His stomach did another somersault. All the task he did to get through in the Triwizard Tournament last year, getting past dragons and merpeople and acromantulas and things. Okay. Hey, <laughs> guess what? Harry's suddenly feeling great. <laughs> did I feel like an animal in a zoo and a freak? A mere seconds ago? I feel fantastic. Harry, swearing he's not just trying to be modest, leans on the same kind of language he used with Ron and Hermione. I had help, and I was very lucky. Zacharias asks... If Harry's trying to get out of actually showing them how to do these things. This moment could have derailed everything, but it's actually a rallying cry. Fred and George threaten to stick a, quote, lethal-looking <laughs> metal instrument up certain parts of Zacharias's body, and Hermione uses the dissent as an on-ramp to confirm that they're all agreed. They want lessons from Harry. They want to rebel.
0: After a brief but hilarious interlude in which almost everyone expresses concern about meetups interfering with Quidditch, it's not just Harry. Yes. Conversation eventually turns, following a pompous but effective anti umbridge show from Ernie, to why Hermione, and, you know, still kind of Hermione here saying, let's go, let's go, I'm leading the charge here, I'm spearheading this, believes this is so necessary, believes that Harry training the students is essential. Quote, we think the reason Umbridge doesn't want us trained in Defense Against the Dark Arts is that she's got some, some mad idea that Dumbledore could use the students in the school as a kind of private army. She thinks he'd mobilize us against the ministry. Now the burgeoning resistance needs to figure out the details, the specifics. Yeah. When are they going to meet? Where are they going to train? Finding a spot seems just as fraught as figuring out how to avoid all the Quidditch conflicts, but they agree to try to meet once a week and they'll figure out the specifics later. And boy, will they. In the meantime, I think everybody should write their name down, Hermione says, just so we know who was here. But I also think, she took a deep breath, that we all ought to agree not to shout about what we're doing. So if you sign, you're agreeing not to tell Umbridge or anybody else what we're up to. Secrecy and trust will be a key part of this initiative. Naturally, not everybody is comfortable with this. Ernie Box, he's a prefect. Sir, Hermione and Ron and Anthony, Padma, plenty yeah. of the people there. Thus has. He feels a lot to lose. Harry chimes in here. Good moment for Harry, showing yes. some leadership and showing that he thinks this is important. You just said this group was the most important thing you'd do this year, he reminds Ernie. It's no longer time for cheap talk. It is time for real action. And Ernie signs. And after that, everyone else goes along and signs the parchment too. Quote, there was an odd feeling in the group now. It was as though they had just signed some kind of contract. And indeed, they have. Not just in feel, but in actuality, as we will soon learn, Hermione has jinxed the paper to reveal and punish any signatories who rat out the resistance. We will debate the morality of that later. Will we? I think good for her. She disfigured somebody. That was tough, but like, don't <laughs> rat. Just maybe use a slightly less strong Snitches get-, <laughs> Snitches get sneak in, right. like, giant pustules across their face. Uh. It's a fight for life and death out here. It's true. And Hermione's foresight and observational skills, they don't end there. She's also spotted something else. Harry and Cho. After speaking about Ginny and Michael, she says, Hey, my guy, what's up with you and Chang? And Harry's stunned. Well, said Hermione, smiling slightly. She just couldn't keep her eyes off you, could she? The quote continues. Harry had never before appreciated
1: just how beautiful the village of Hogsmeade was. Chapter 17, Educational Decree Number 24. Yeah! Harry spends the rest of the weekend on a high. From the book, the knowledge that they were doing something to resist Umbridge in the ministry and that he was a key part of the rebellion gave Harry a feeling of immense satisfaction. Fighting feels right to Harry. It gives him purpose. Then, Umbridge makes her move. Coming down from the dormitory, Harry and Ron find a large sign affixed to the Gryffindor message board. It reads, in part, By order of the High Inquisitor of Hogwarts. All student organizations, societies, teams, groups, and clubs are henceforth disbanded. The decree goes on to define any regular meeting of three or more students as an organization, society, or team. Henceforth, students seeking to be part of any gathering, which falls under that extremely wide definition, must get permission from the High Inquisitor, Dolores Umbridge. Harry and Ron go to find Hermione. Someone rat him out? Does Umbridge know? Hermione says, no, it's impossible. And she tells them about the jinx on the parchment. Believe me, if anyone's run off and told Umbridge, we'll know exactly who they are and they will really regret it. Woo! (laughs) Our friends walk into the Great Hall and are immediately beset by their conspirators, Neville, Dean, Fred, and George, and Ginny. Did you see? Does she know? What do we do? Quote, they were all looking at Harry, which fine, we get it, but they should all be looking at Hermione at this point. (laughs) Harry says the training is still on. Now everyone from the Hogshead meet is looking over or about to come over, which panics Hermione. The fact that it would be suspicious if people from different houses were seen crossing to talk to each other too often shows that the Sorting Hats warning has had zero effect. Hermione and Ginny manage to chill everyone out. Leaving the hall, Angelina comes over with some extra, extra, extra bad news. Yeah, that decree covers Quidditch teams. Angelina channeling her inner wood is flipping the fuck out. Harry must, she implores, behave himself.
0: Listen, the fascists always know. Keep that in mind. Things get worse. They don't yet know for sure whether the decree was a direct shot at what will become Dumbledore's army, but what happens next is surely a move against Harry. He's in History of Magic, listening to Bins droning on about giant wars. Harry, my guy. Really useful information there. Pay attention. When Hedwig... Hedwig lights outside the window. This is strange. Hedwig doesn't show up like this. She didn't come to breakfast. Why? Harry lets her in, and he takes her back to his desk, and that's when he realizes that she's injured. Quote, Hedwig's feathers were oddly ruffled. Some were bent the wrong way, and she was holding one of her wings at an odd angle. This makes me so sad. Poor little bubby. Harry begs out of class, cleaning illness. His first instinct, of course, would be to take Hedwig to Hagrid, but Hagrid's been absent since the beginning of term. So he heads instead to the staff room, hoping to find the grubster, Grubbly Plank. He finds her and McGonagall there. Grubbinator, ready to help out. Quote, looks like something's attacked her. Can't think what would have done it, though. Thestrals will sometimes go for birds, of course, but Hagrid's got the Hogwarts Thestrals well-trained to not touch owls. Harry's, like, thinking to himself, don't know what Thestrals are, don't care. Right. Only the mystery dragon horses you've been wondering about all year, bud. McGonagall... Ask how far Hedwig had been traveling. Harry says, from London, I think. An understanding flashes between them. This means Twelve Grimmauld Place, the order's headquarters. Grubbly Plank offers to nurse Hedwig for a few days, and she takes the owl back into the staff room. Hedwig's like, I can't believe you're letting this stranger take me away. It's very tough stuff. Oh, Harry, stay with your pet. She needs you. Anyway, before Hedwig and Grubbs can retreat McGonagall, Reminds Harry about the letter attached to Hedwig's leg. idiot. <laughs> Listen, Harry, famously a wonderful pet owner, is right. thinking of nothing but Hedwig's well-being at all times, and of course was distracted. As Harry's about to leave, McGonagall pulls him aside. Bear in mind, she said quickly and quietly, her eyes on the scroll in his hand, the channels of communication in and out of Hogwarts may be being watched, won't you? The budding rebellion is a threat that Umbridge intends to stomp out. Harry opens the scroll and
1: sees, in Sirius's hand, a brief message. Today, same time, same place. Hermione and Ron are not surprised to hear about the attack. In fact, Hermione had assumed as much. Who's the letter from anyway, asks Ron. It's from Sirius. He will appear in the Gryffindor common room's fireplace tonight. Hermione is dubious. What if whoever attacked Hedwig managed to intercept the letter? Harry's like, oh, but it was sealed. We're magicians, you fucking idiot. We're like wizards and witches. You think that that's hard to reseal a parchment? Oh, my God. And anyway, what if the Flu Network is being watched? Well, guess what it is? The trio head off to potions. And on the way there, they run into Draco Malfoy and his gang of sycophants. If our friends are the core of the Hogwarts resistance, Malfoy is a happy supporter of the Umbridge regime, a Vichy prefect. Malfoy is talking about the Slytherin Quidditch team. They've been given permission to play by Inquisitor Umbridge. He says, straight away, I went to ask her this first thing this morning. Well, it was pretty much automatic. I mean, she knows my father really well. He's always popping in and out of the ministry. It'll be interesting to see whether Gryffindor are allowed to keep playing, won't it? Should be popping in and out of Azkaban. Popping in and never out. (laughs) Malfoy goes on to hiss that... From what he's heard, the ministry could cashier Arthur Weasley at any moment. And Harry, quote, My father says it's a matter of time before the ministry has him carted off to St. Mungo's. Apparently, they got a special ward for people whose brains have been addled by magic. Hermione had been imploring Harry not to rise to the bait. But before Harry can even do anything, Neville charges in. His parents, of course, are in St. Mungo's after being tortured to insanity by Death Eaters, who number among their members... Malfoy. Welcome to the resistance, Neville Longbottom. Remember, it's not enough to fight. You need something to fight for. That's ultimately the difference between Harry and Voldemort. One is fighting to preserve and protect, the other to tear down. Neville, in defending his parents and honoring their memories, finding his reason to stand up. And with it, his courage to do so. Harry, Ron, and Hermione restrain him, which leads to Snape docking Gryffindor 10 points for fight.
0: Snape has been uh a... Massive, pus filled boil in Harry's ass. Just ask Fred and George about those. (laughs) Harry's whole time at Hogwarts. He's bullied Harry. He's taken points without cause. He's openly mocked him and his friends. Often, most notably, Neville. Though let's never forget the Hermione teeth thing. That was just so fucking savage. So it is a measure of how vile Umbridge really is that Harry can't even enjoy the schadenfreude, the perverse joy of the High Inquisitor's questioning of Snape. She's there, and she asks how long he's been teaching at Hogwarts. Fourteen years, Snape answers. Oh, one fewer year than Harry's been alive? The exact time frame since his mother's death? Just like with the time frame of Trelawney's tenure, this stamp primes us for what we will eventually learn about a key character's history. Umbridge says, you applied first for the Defense Against the Dark Arts post, I believe? Snape answers curtly, yes. But you were unsuccessful? Snape's lip curled. Obviously. I love that in the movie. and yeah. The way Alan Rickman says that. Professor Snape, welcome to the... Oh. He's already in the resistance, isn't he? Umbridge asks why Dumbledore has kept Snape from the defense job and makes a very, very thinly veiled, like tracing paper, saran wrap thin, allusion to Snape's death eater past, which should have been a really notable moment in the which side is Snape on debate. Clearly, the Ministry really believed that he was Dumbledore's man, fully. But of course... What alternative was there? They refused to acknowledge that his other former boss is back. Part of the impetus behind mounting the rebellion is saying without shame or fear of repercussion that Voldemort is back and that it's time to fight him. That's what Harry and Dumbledore have been doing. But part of it is also about learning to operate in the shadows, to advance by stealth. That's how Dumbledore's army will function, and that's how Snape must function as well.
1: When Harry gets to divination, it is clear that Something is wrong. Trelawney is a fucking mess. Well, carry on, said Professor Trelawney loudly, her voice high-pitched and somewhat hysterical. You know what to do, or am I such a substandard teacher that you have never learned how to open a book? Literally one of my all-time favorite lines. <laughs> we learn through her mutters that Umbridge has placed her on probation. Yes, those with eyes too clouded by the mundane to see as I see, to know as I know. Of course, we seers have always been feared, always persecuted. It is an loss fate. Hermione quit this class. Harry and Ron consider it an aberrant waste of time, and Harry an outright assault on his emotional state. McGonagall openly mocks her, but rebellions breed strange breadfellows, as we just mentioned, and we'll soon see Umbridge's decision to put Trelawney in her crosshairs will fuel the desire for McGonagall and others to protect her. Bet the inner eye didn't see that one coming. In oh, fact, I know well, for a fact, not. because like Trelawney would not be acting like this.
0: Listen. The different colored teacups require a lot of attention. (laughs) With Fred spectacularly vomiting and Lee vanishing it. Gotta assume this is the same spell they used to vanish the shit, right? (laughs) In the common room, Harry waits for Sirius. After midnight, the room finally clears and Sirius arrives, Crookshanks purring loudly. They're ready to report everything, but there's no need because Sirius already knows what they're up to. As we mentioned, that mysterious witch at the hog's head was really dung-fletch in disguise. You'd think they would have recognized the stale stench about him, but I guess, again, that just really speaks to the quality of the aroma in the hog's head more than anything. Sirius takes a weird shot here at Hermione, telling her she has a lot to learn because she chose the quiet place instead of the loud place, the three broomsticks. This is ironic to consider, given that Harry first learned about Sirius's relationship to James by overhearing a top-secret conversation at the three broomsticks. But Sirius isn't worried or mad. Quote, he was looking at Harry with distinct pride. Sirius disseminates some messages. The MILF says that Ron is under no circumstances to partake in an illegal defense group. She'd rather Harry and Hermione not either, but she knows she can't make them. She can't speak to them for herself, by the way, because she's on duty. Doing what? Well, mounting the order, shadow campaign, of course, so we won't learn that for some time. The adults, though, are fighting oppression and terror. They're out there doing it. Is Mrs. Weasley's desire to keep her children from this admirable or misguided? Or are those not mutually exclusive in this case? They are children, yes. And this shouldn't be their burden, but it is. And they are rising to meet that challenge in a way that few ever have. What Dumbledore has said of Harry in the past now fits more than just him. They are proving equal to a grown wizard's burden. And Sirius is thrilled. When Ron asks, so do you want me to say I won't do it? Sirius says, me? Certainly not. I think it's an excellent idea. He invokes, naturally, James's name. Harry's father never would have lain down for someone like Umbridge. Better expelled and able to fight than well-educated and dead, Sirius reasons. This is at once extremely heartening, especially after the way that their last conversation ended. Restoring Sirius's support fills Harry with hope and courage. He looks to his godfather for guidance and support. On the other hand, though, this is the same man who warned Harry with relentless fervor to be safe Mm -hmm. and smart and avoid risks all last year. Sirius rationalizes the difference in his advice by saying that the circumstances are not the same. And that's true, but something else is different, too. Sirius is so eager to fight, so eager to help challenge the foe, that he's lost track of what's wise— And we're reminded of how reckless he's being when, as he's offering up suggestions on where to meet, he pauses in terror and vanishes. Right where his head had been, there appears a hand, short and stubby, the fingers covered in rings, umbrage, proof, confirmation. They're being watched. They're being tracked. They can't let that stop them. But they can't be careless either, or their insurgency will end before it's
1: even started. Chapter 18, Dumbledore's Army, The Effect of What Transpired the Night Prior haunting their steps. If Umbridge caught Snuffles, he'd be back in Askman. She's reading Harry's mail clearly. That's who dropped the dung bomb lie. That's who hurt Hedwick. The only good news is that Angelina has gotten permission to reform the Gryffindor Quidditch team. That cheers up Ron and Harry, but Hermione's in a hazy mood, more wondering, I suppose we're doing the right thing, I think, aren't we? And Harry and Ron are like, what? This is <laughs> your idea. You wanted to yeah. do this. Yeah. What? it transpires that Sirius supporting the idea, and this this is incredible. Hermione recognizes that Sirius is such a mess that him being like, that's a great idea, Real has nice her flag. being like, hmm, maybe we shouldn't do this? Yeah. <laughs> what an indictment of his judgment, by the way, and Harry's furious, but she notes astutely that he's been reckless since he's been cooped up at 12 Grimmauld plays. You don't think he's kind of living through us? She notes that he'd love to be forming secret defense societies. Of course, Sirius is actually in one of those. His house serves as the headquarters of a legitimate secret society. He was in the original order, and he's in the second version as well. But being in and not being able to contribute is so much worse than not knowing the mutiny is actually underway. In some ways, it's like being a squib in the magical world, aware but at a remove. As Fred and George
0: discuss wanting to be able to remove from their ass boils that they're getting from fever fudge, and Angelina puts the entire team basically on PEDs by having them all use the impervious spell to repel rain, and a failed practice halts prematurely, Harry's scar sears more painfully than it has in months. Once he and Ron are alone, Ron says that there's no way Voldemort can be close. No, Harry muttered, sinking onto a bench and rubbing his forehead. He's probably miles away. It hurts because he's angry. The passage continues. Harry had not meant to say that at all and heard the words as though a stranger had spoken them. Yet he knew at once that they were true. He did not know how he knew it, but he did. Voldemort, wherever he was, whatever he was doing, was in a towering temper. It's hard enough to lead a revolt when you have to worry about spies in your midst. Harry has a spy inside his own body. This passage this moment is a massive horcrux clue the pathway between harry and voldemort is evolving and harry's understanding is evolving along with it focusing harry taps in more voldemort wants something done he tells ron and it's not happening quickly enough the prophecy retrieval will soon learn harry thinks back on the last couple times he felt something in his scar the whoop in his belly that he experienced when he looked at umbridge voldemort was happy the pain that Harry felt at old Place, Voldemort was furious. When Ron tells Harry that he could take over for Trelawney, Harry says, I'm not making prophecies. He's tapping into something real, something present. He's reading, as he puts it, you know who's mood. Harry wondering what isn't happening fast enough for his good friend Tom's liking. And you know, Tom's his good friend. He's worried. He wants to make sure he's getting what he needs quickly. Thinks back to Sirius's preschool year words, a weapon, something he didn't have last time. Has the order thwarted Voldemort? Where's this weapon now? Harry's working to subvert not only Voldemort, but Umbridge in the ministry. And it is amazing to think in this moment that he doesn't totally know what he's doing it for. He knows what right and wrong is. He knows what the truth and the lies are. He knows what he wants, but he doesn't really know why. They need to defend themselves, yes, but from what? Voldemort, sure, but Voldemort armed with what? Well, as we'll learn, the truth behind Harry's parents' death, the truth behind Harry's scar, the truth behind Harry's entire identity and the burden that he now bears.
1: Harry drifts off to muddled, sleepy thoughts about Voldemort and their connection and Dumbledore's inability— refusal, though he doesn't know that, to satisfactory explain it. He slips into another dream about the corridor and the door, and this time his heart beats with long. He wants to get through that door. He doesn't know it yet, but he's channeling Voldemort's desire. Before he can reach out, though, he is awoken by the Dobbinator. Dobby and Hedwig. And he's wearing every single hat, scarf, and sock that Hermione has ever knit. Because he's a weirdo. Well, minus the ones that uh, he's taken for winking. None of the other house elves, we'll learn, will clean Gryffindor Tower because they fear picking up one of Hermione's yarn wares. Dobby's bummed to hear Harry muttering in his sleep and see him look glum. He expresses a desire to ease Harry's troubles. Well, I'm glad you asked. See, I have this secret society, and we're trying to be an army, And so we just, like, need a place to practice fighting and stuff. Do you know any place like that? Oh, yes, I do. Dobby knows the perfect place, sir, he said happily. Dobby heard tell of it from other ourselves when he came to Hogwarts, sir. It is known by us as the come and go room, sir, or else the room of requirement. Harry asks why it's called that, and Dobby explains that a person can only enter when they have real need of the room. Sometimes it's there. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's one thing, sometimes it's something else, but it always gives the seeker what the seeker requires most. Dobby's been hiding Winky in there when she's shit-faced, and the rumor requirement <laughs> has given him butterbeer antidotes and an elf-sized bed. Filch found extra cleaning supplies in there, so it works for squibs as we to think about this. Hearing this, Harry recalls Dumbledore's story from the Yule Ball the prior year about a room he'd never seen before appearing to him Full of chamber prots when he desperately needed to piss. Harry asks how many people know about the room, and Dobby says very few. So few, in fact, that Voldemort will believe he's the only one who's ever learned its secrets. Hiding Ravenclaw's lost diadem, one of his horcruxes, in there. Shocking. First of all, it's full of stuff. Full of stuff. So you think you're the only one that knows about it? I can't wait to talk about this more. You fucking idiot. It's literally full of shit. Anyway. The Rumor Requirement will play a pivotal role in the series moving forward for Harry and Dumbledore's army, for Malfoy, for Harry hiding the Prince's book, for the Horcrux hunt, and much, much more. Voldemort, as we say so often, is undone by his hubris, and the Rumor Requirement reveals that hubris doubly so. Not only does he mistakenly dismiss others' ability to find and use the room, but as we'll learn with Creature's Tale and Hallows and Dobby's Malfoy mana rescue, he basically dismisses Elves' ability to use magic. Harry's choice and courage and willingness to sacrifice himself for those he loves will ultimately doom Voldemort and allow the uprising to win, but so too does Voldemort's arrogance.
0: Hermione is wary, but Harry mentions that Dumbledore also told him about the room, albeit just in passing, and that calms her. Despite everything that's transpiring, the kids still trust Dumbledore fully, notable. They inform the members of the group and, with the aid of the Marauders, map, make their way to their new destination. Harry follows Dobby's instructions to activate the room, walking past the stretch of wall three times thinking about what they need. Somewhere to learn to fight. Somewhere they can't be found. And it works. The room obliges. A door appears, and when Harry opens it, he's drawn into a room lined with defensive magic books and dark detectors and cushions on the floor. It is perfect. rumor requirement. One of my favorite magical inventions in the series. Just spectacular. When their 25 other members arrive, they're all awed. Turns out that the twins actually hid in here once before, but back then, it was just a broom closet. Everyone has questions, and Harry impresses immediately by identifying the dark detectors. But before he can start his lesson, Hermione moves to anoint a leader. Harry's leader, said Cho at once, looking at Hermione as though she were mad, and Harry's stomach did yet another backflip. Yes, Hermione says, but let's formalize it. She wants Harry to have unimpeachable authority. Next, she moves that they select a name, and one that's coded, too. The Defense Association, said Cho, the DA for short, so nobody knows what we're talking about. Yeah, the DA is good, said Ginny, only let's make it stand for Dumbledore's army because that's the ministry's worst fear, isn't it? Aha, Cho got there first, but Ginny won in the end, just like with Harry. Harry opens with Expelliarmus, I know it's pretty basic, but I found it really useful, he starts to say. Oh, please, said Zachariah Smith, rolling his eyes and folding his arms. I don't think Expelliarmus is exactly going to help us against you-know-who, do you? I've used it against him, said Harry quietly. It saved my life last June. Smith opened his mouth stupidly. (laughs) The rest of the room was very quiet. But if you think it's beneath you, Harry continues, you can leave. This is it. This is what everyone really needs. The knowledge that only Harry has. The firsthand experience that's kept him alive. Resisting isn't always about doing what's flashy. It's about the fundamentals. Before the DA can become a three true outcomes league, they need to learn how to lay down a butt. <laughs> Remember, too, that Harry first learned Expelliarmus from Snape. Not until series end will Harry appreciate the connections that he and Snape share. But he's already being guided and shaped by Snape, even
1: though he doesn't realize it in full. Harry instructs everyone to pair off, feeling odd about issuing formal instructions. But considering Zacharias' mockery, it's a good thing Harry started with the basic stuff. There's a lot of shitty spell work going on here. These kids, remember, have not been properly trained throughout their career. Like, a at mess. all. Their They're te- a mess. The teachers have been, in general, substandard. Harry thinks that he needs a whistle and boom, there one is. Harry walks around and when he gets to Cho, she lights Marietta on fire. Good. And Harry <laughs> tells Harry he made her nervous. Marietta, like, listen. Oh my God. It's tough, tough stuff for Marietta. But, you know, stuff. Snitches get lit on fire, I guess. <laughs> Cho reveals that her parents have forbidden her from getting on the wrong side of the ministry, but she wants to fight. After what happened to Cedric, She stops, looking confused, an awkward pause between them. She still thinks of Cedric, and his death is, of course, a primary motivator. But she wants to be with Harry, too. They wrap, worried about time, and amid enthusiastic cheers, agree to meet again next Wednesday. Not even Ron and Hermione bickering can sour Harry's mood. The first DA meeting was a rousing success. The insurrection is underway, and Cho said he made her nervous. Chapter 19, The Lion and the Serpent. The secret training sessions and the
0: rumor requirement keep Harry going. It's ironic in a way. These are the worst of times. Division and oppression are strengthening at Hogwarts and in the wider wizarding world. Umbridge's increasingly authoritarian influence shows no sign of waning. Quite the opposite. And yet, Harry has found his calling. He says it feels like he's carrying a talisman in his chest. He's fighting back. His friends are fighting back. And they're doing it right under Umbridge's nose. Remember the words that Harry will think back on in Half-Blood Prince as he sits at Dumbledore's funeral, reflecting on the pain and loss and the challenges ahead, but also on one of the greatest lessons that Dumbledore ever taught him. Quote, it was important, Dumbledore said, to fight and fight again and keep fighting, for only then could evil be kept at bay, though never quite eradicated. In that moment, Harry's thinking about Voldemort, But it also applies to Umbridge. It applies to any tyrant who rises on the backs of those they oppress. And right now, Harry is working to tear a tyrant down. And it feels (laughs) wonderful, powerful, right? Yes, these are bad times. But there's something thrilling about trying to make
1: them better. Managing these schedules of 28 people has been tough. But Hermione just came up with something to make it easier. Fake galleons. Sorry, Ron. With numbers around the edges. When Harry sets the date of the next meet, the coins that the DA members have grow warm, notifying them that this has been done. And the numbers on their coins will correspond to the date of the next training session. Now it's Hermione's turn to get some shine. You can do a protean charm, said Terry Boot, but that's that's newt standard, that is. We learn here that Hermione was almost sorted into Ravenclaw. Ironically, Hermione got the idea from the way Voldemort summons his Death Eaters. After Harry mentions how similar the two methods are, Hermione says, that is where I got the idea, but you'll notice, I decided to engrave the date on bits of metal rather than on our member's skin.
0: How thoughtful. I'll
1: save that for Mariana. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Poor girl. No sneaks in the DA and no sneaks on the Quidditch pitch. Quidditch took last year off with the Triwizard Tournament, but it's back and back with vengeance. The students need a break from the tension and dourness of Hogwarts under Umbridge. The school, its students and its teachers, though not Umbridge, of course, throws itself full bore back into their traditional rivalries. With so many dramatic changes to Hogwarts age-old traditions, this return to form feels like its own kind of resistance. And the first matchup of the season is a doozy. Gryffindor versus Slytherin. One wrinkle, though. Gryffindor's rookie keeper is Ron Weasley. (laughs) It's tough. It's tough stuff. Now, Ron is looking good in practice, it must be said. But on the morning of the match... When Harry mentions his masterful foot save from one of their training sessions, Ron confesses that's a bit deceiving. Quote, that was an accident, he whispered miserably. I didn't mean to do it. I slipped off my broom when none of you were looking, and I was trying to get back on it, and I kicked the quaffle by accident. <laughs> well, said Harry, recovering quickly from this unpleasant surprise. A few more accidents like that, and the game's in the bag, isn't it? At least Luna's wearing a massive lion's hat. Hey. It roars, too. There we go. It does roar. She's all in all the time, but the energy and intense emotion and pressure of the game, it all has Ron totally rattled, and the Slytherins can sense that he's weak. Harry passes a table where the Slytherin students are handing out badges shaped like crowns that read, Weasley is our king. This does not bode well. Gryffindor plays from behind for most of the game, with King Weasley getting absolutely battered in the paint. The Slytherins even have a song to go along with the whole bit. Weasley cannot save a thing. He cannot block a single ring. That's why Slytherins all sing. Weasley is our king. Wonderful. Weasley was born in a bin. <laughs> That's just <is> mean. <laughs> That's really tough. Terrible. And on and on it goes. Ron is flailing, crumbling under the pressure, letting in score
1: after score. Eventually, though, Clash shines through. And Harry, of course,
0: catches the snitch.
1: It's all over! And then a bludger hits Harry in the back, courtesy of Crab. And the violence does not stop there. Moments after the match is finished, Draco, who Harry just out for the snitch, goes to work at what he's really good at. You see, he's a middling seeker, but a very, very good troll. He starts off by asking Harry, what'd you think of Weasley as our king? I've been cooking that one up in the lab. You know what I'm saying? That was a collab between me and Slytherin. <laughs> I wrote those lyrics. Then he really turns on the charm. He says, we wanted to write another couple of verses, but we couldn't find rhymes for fat and ugly. We wanted to sing about his mother, see? ah, And Little Death Eater is just getting started. He continues, we couldn't fit in useless loser either for his father, you know. Now Fred and George are beginning to catch on to what Draco is talking about. And the whole Quidditch team is trying to hold them back. Then Draco homie Quan drops his next diss track, Titled, I promise I will never, ever, ever, ever stop going in part one billion. He says, or perhaps you can remember what your mother's house stank like, Potter. And Weasley's pigsty reminds you of it. And now it's on. Harry gripping the snitch doubles up Draco with a fist to the stomach. And there's a riot going on. Finally, Madam Hooch stirs from her slumber. <laughs> <laughs> Where have you been? Hoochie a nap. a snooze. Hoochie, uh, what could you even have been doing? <laughs> she finally steps up and brings this under control. Harry and George get sent to McGee's office. McGonagall is pissed. She's in the midst of reading them the riot act when him, him. Uh-oh. Oh. Uh-oh. Oh, no. The High Inquisitor, sensing an opportunity to turn the screws even further on Harry Potter, has arrived. Why, I thought you might be grateful for a little extra authority. (laughs) You thought wrong, McGonagall says. (laughs) She's the best. (laughs) McGonagall leaves Harry and George detention and pretty clearly tries to hustle them out the door. Okay, we're done. Detention, Mm -hmm. bye-bye. Him, him. Shit. I think they deserve rather more than detentions. And McGonagall points out that, hey, I'm head of Gryffindor House, so... My word goes. Uh-huh. Not so fast. Umbridge produces a letter from her handbag, Educational Decree number no. 25. Not another one! It reads, in part, the High Inquisitor will henceforth have supreme authority over all punishments, sanctions, and removal of privileges pertaining to the students of Hogwarts. Blah, 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 blah. You get the picture sign Corn Fudge. Minister of Tragic. <laughs> Using that power, Umbridge <laughs> bans Harry and George and Fred even though he didn't fight. Just for being a twin. Yeah. From Quidditch. For life! (laughs) There is a little bit of a silver lining, though. Hermione, later on, looking out the snow-flecked window, sees something out there. And she has some news. Hagrid back.
0: Yes! I can't wait for that next Drake Malfoy track. Pansy,
1: do you love me? Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) My good friend, Pansy Parkinson... (laughs) Jason. Yeah. Most people
0: stumbles across binge mode when they needs it, sir. But often they never finds it again, for they do not know that it is always there waiting to be called into service. So please call yourself into service. Toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about Dolores Umbridge's career.
1: Say what you will about Umbridge, but after becoming High Inquisitor, she will soon succeed in becoming Hogwarts' headmistress. And from piecing together various student clues at places like Pottermore, it appears that she is the first witch in charge of the school in more than a century. After Eupraxia Mole in the 1870s, shouts to Eupraxia Mole. Way to break through the enchanted glass ceiling, Dolores. Her rise to power is all the more unlikely given her modest upbringing, Dolores Jane Umbridge, named by Rowling because Dolores means sorrow and Umbridge sounds like Umbridge, as in to take Umbridge or offense, was the eldest child of Orford Umbridge and Ellen Cracknell. She lived an unhappy childhood, according to Pottermore, hating her father because he worked in the Department of Magical Maintenance and displayed a lack of ambition and her mother because she was a muggle and produced a squib son. Eventually, when she was 15, her family ruptured after a fight in which Dolores and Orford blamed Ellen for the son's lack of magical abilities. Ellen and her son vanished back into the Muggle world, never to see Dolores again. And our then teenage witch spent the rest of her life pretending, like so many other wizards we meet in this story, that she was of pure blood. Unfortunately, her hatred of Muggles spread through the rest of her life. Dolores didn't enjoy her time at Hogwarts, internally fuming at being passed over for all positions of responsibility. And after graduation, she entered the ministry workforce as an intern in the improper use of magic office. She quickly ascended to become that office's head before turning 30 and then climbed higher in the ranks of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement. Eventually, with a combination of buttery support for her superiors and ruthlessness by which she stole credit for other people's works, she grew close to Minister for Magic Corn fudge. This time in Umbridge's life wasn't perfect, though. She was constantly on edge to try to improve her reputation. (laughs) Why was her reputation bad? She persuaded her father to retire and retreat from public life, for instance, and thereafter pretended that he had been a respected member of the Wizen Gamut. As Rowling writes on Pottermore, nasty things tended to happen to people who asked about Orford or anything that Loris did not like talking about, and people who wanted to remain on her good side Pretended to believe her version of her ancestry. She also never succeeded in finding a marital partner despite her best efforts. And she wasn't picky either, but just wanted a powerful and well respected husband to advance her own career. She wasn't picky? She wasn't picky. She just wanted a powerful and well respected man who could advance her career. She's like, we'll take any guy as long as he's extremely powerful. Shunned by prospective suitors, generally disliked by her co-workers, Dolores held on tighter to her eccentricities as Rowling writes, As she grew older and harder and rose higher within the ministry. Dolores' taste in little girlish accessories grew more and more pronounced. Her office became a place of frills and furbelows, and she liked anything decorated With the kittens. Uh, She'd like uh, the internet age then, though found the real thing inconveniently messy. She did not like real cats, but she liked embroidered cats. Of course, a woman as vile as Umbridge would like the idea of a pet, but not the real thing. Incidentally, Rowling borrowed many of these traits from people she intensely disliked in real life. So Umbridge's penchant for childish bows, oddly shaped jewelry, and overwhelming pictures of kittens are all associated with Umbridge's particular brand of, as Rowling writes, love of all things saccharine despite a lack of real warmth or charity. Her vileness extended in other directions, which we've already seen bits and pieces of in order. At Hogwarts, she viewed her ability to punish students as revenge against those who had spurned her when she was a student. She had a phobia against non-human creatures, and in her words, half-breeds. She occasionally scared even her anti-muggle colleagues in the ministry who found themselves shocked by Dolores' proposal after a glass of (laughs) sweet sherry real Stephen Miller character here. Between leaving Hogwarts in order and commanding the courtroom in Hallows, Umbridge was unaffected professionally by her disastrous experiences, headmistress. Due to Voldemort's return, new minister Rufus Scrimgeour had more pressing concerns than punishing her, which is what allowed her to maintain her lofty perch in the ministry and eventually oversee the Muggleborn registration commission after the Death Eater takeover. After Voldemort's fall, Although, Umbridge found herself on the other end of the trial atmosphere. She was convicted of torture, imprisonment, and deaths of several people, as some muggle-born witches and wizards whom she had sent to Azkaban had, you know, died there on Forch. And she finally faded from public life for good. And good riddance, as Rowling writes. Except in their declared allegiances, there is little to choose between Umbridge and Bellatrix Lestrange. And her desire to control, to punish, and to inflict pain, all in the name of law and order, are, I think... Every bit as reprehensible as Lord Voldemort's unvarnished espousal of evil. I wholeheartedly agree.
0: Jason? Yes. Binge modes in her eye, does not see upon command. That's right. Except when it comes to foreshadowing. So let's split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Order, chapters 15 through 19. Because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. You go first.
1: Number one, really tragic foreshadowing line from Hermione here. Until Voldemort, oh for heaven's sake, Ron, comes out in the open, Sirius is going to have to stay hidden, isn't he? I mean, the stupid ministry isn't going to realize Sirius is innocent until they accept that Dumbledore's been telling the truth about him all along. Once the fools start catching real Death Eaters again, it'll be obvious Sirius isn't one. This would have all been true, except Sirius died earlier the very night this all happens.
0: Devastating. Number
1: two. Lots of
0: notable lines about Aberforth Dumbledore and info about his pub, the Hogshead, in this section. First of all, we get this line that the tavern, quote, smelled strongly of something that might have been goats. Well, we know, of course, even though we don't know in the moment this is Aberforth. We learned in Goblet that Aberforth has a bit of a history with goats. Then, the Hogshead barman is described as, quote, tall and thin and looked vaguely familiar to Harry. Of course, looks like his brother, Albus. Then, quote, the whole group seemed to have held its breath while Harry spoke. Harry had the impression that even the barman was listening. He was wiping the same glass with the filthy rag. It was becoming steadily dirtier. First of all, gross. Second of all, of course he's listening. Then, this line from Sirius later, that barman's got a long memory. Well, about his brother Albus and their family history, he certainly does, as we will see in Deathly Hallows. Then about the Hogshead, worth keeping in mind, of course, given that Harry and the defense group were overheard by Mundungus, The Hogshead is the place where Trelawney made the prophecy to Dumbledore and where Snape overheard that prediction. Mm. Given that key intel has also been heard in the Three Broomsticks, is anywhere in Hogsmeade safe other than Sirius's cave? And then finally, remember also that the Hogshead is where Riddle's allies stayed when he came to Hogwarts to request a teaching position. But Dumbledore learned this secret too, thanks again to his barman connection.
1: Number three. Marietta, looking reproachful about signing the list, which Hermione has jinxed. And then Cho says that Marietta's mother had forbidden her to join because of her ministry work. It's all foreshadowing for sneak later in the book.
0: Number four, when Harry chooses to open the first DA lesson with Expelliarmus because it can help against Voldemort, he's thinking about using it in the past. But worth remembering. This will hold true about his future, too. Harry will use Expelliarmus to thwart Voldemort, in essence, killing him at the end. Relatedly, speaking of Harry and his connection to Voldemort, when Harry says of Cedric's death, quote, that could just as easily have been me, it's worth remembering again. That might have been true in the one instant that Harry is describing, but moving forward, once Voldemort has returned, it will not be true. Harry doesn't know it yet, but by taking Harry's blood, Voldemort transferred Lily's protection, tethering Harry to life while Voldemort lives.
1: Number five, Megalian back. Big, big match this week, Gryffindor, Slytherin. Guess what? No homework for a week leading up to it. Guy's got to keep fresh. And she actually goes to Dumbledore to get the team reinstated. She knows what she's doing. She sure does. She's a great
0: book for her. Fabulous book for her. Number six, a lot of just fun little teen romance nuggets. First of all, we get the dormitory slide in this section, which is fabulous. When Ron starts running up to go find Hermione, the steps up to the girls' dormitory turn into a slide. Now, we know Hermione can go up into the boys' dormitory, no problem. But as Hermione knows, hey, it might be an old-fashioned rule, but clearly, boys, not as trustworthy. And I have to wonder, how many times did Arthur activate that slide, trying to get to Molly? He still got the marks. Ooh. Next, Hermione kisses Ron in this section. She says, good luck, Ron. She stands on her tiptoes and kisses him on the cheek before the Quidditch match. Wishes Harry luck as well. And then, quote, Ron seemed to come to himself slightly as they walked back across the Great Hall. He touched the spot on his face where Hermione had kissed him, looking puzzled, as though he was not quite sure what had just happened.
1: Young love and bloom. How Wonderful. Delightful. My guy Ron failing upward throughout the course of the series. <laughs> uh.
0: <laughs> and then, of course, some lovely Ginny-Harry foreshadowing. When we learn about Ginny and Michael's relationship, we also learn from Hermione that this is why Ginny is normal around Harry now. She's over it. And only in getting over it is she actually able to eventually in a relationship with him moving forward. And then, of course, Ron's reaction to learning about Michael is classic Ron showing the immaturity that will keep him and Hermione apart for so long.
1: Number seven, um, are the students actually killing animals <laughs> in transfiguration? Later in the series, we'll hear McGallion say that the vanished objects go into non-being, which is to say everything. <laughs> okay, I mean, that's also sounds like Kind of like wizard parlance for the dog went upstate to live on a farm.
0: I don't like that. I don't like thinking about the fact that they're just maybe killing animals. Also, like,
1: Ron's holding up the tail. Like, so you're just severing body parts from the animals? Also, like, Harry, like, strangled the toad, and the eyes almost popped out. And then Ron Ron poked it in the eye. It's not good. It's
0: awful. Man,
1: it's not good. Come on, guys. What the fuck? Mal, this is much more important than podcast prep. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or creature that compelled us most. And today, we're going to be dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup, too. <music> Hermione Granger! Yeah, Your Hermione. winner. Runaway winner. Easy. Like, none of this would have happened without her. Fabulous book for Hermione. Really, really great book for Hermione.
0: She conceives of... The idea to start the student defense group, which will ultimately become Dumbledore's army, she convinces Harry, who was
1: so uncomfortable, almost allergic to this idea, that he should teach the students defense. And she shows that she can evolve, too, by understanding that there are things more important than schoolwork. She says Voldemort's name, which lets you know she is serious. She also just dunks on Umbridge when she
0: flawlessly, effortlessly reveals that she has memorized the entire textbook before their second Defense Against
1: the Dark Arts lesson. Impresses the entire Dumbledore's army by performing a Protean charm, which is newt level magic and allows the group to maintain its secrecy. Listen, if you can take inspiration from the Dark Mark, you have to do it. Again, I know she deformed somebody, but like we're signing up to join a secret society to fight evil. It's true. I mean like Jinxing the
0: paper to wash out the rat brilliant
1: the nature of the washing out i mean like listen you're joining this to fight and perhaps die Mm -hmm. to fight voldemort yeah so like if you don't want to do that just don't come to the hogshead that's fine (laughs) but if you come and you sign the paper that's it you're in you're
0: in or you're disfigured for
1: life (laughs) those are the only choices for my left sorry
0: well friends that clears that up it would have been really annoying if we hadn't explained ourselves properly. Thanks, as always, to our defense leaders, Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher. We hope that you all had as much fun as we did today, that you were as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you'll join us again tomorrow when we will be discussing Order chapters 20 through 23. Until then, remember, we podcasters have always been feared, always persecuted. It is, alas, our fate.
1: So I, I was out in the van, and I'm watching through the cameras at the Hog's Head. Fourth is handling raw goat meat, and then touching these filthy glasses with the same rag that he's using the wipe his, his goat meat hands. So I had to do something about it. I, I went in there. <laughs> hey, stop, Abel! Shut it down! <laughs> shut it down now! What is this? Is this raw goat meat? Right next to the butterbeer? Why are there goats in here? You don't have any refrigeration? I don't know. I want to hit a magic wizard whatever. Let me tell you something. Do you have a, a, a spell that can get rid of salmonella? you got going to kill somebody.